0: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the uh, director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Your host today, uh, together with the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III, Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, represented here today by Heritage Legal Fellow, fellow Andrew Kloster, um, Kloster, late of the uh, NYU Law School. Um, through the Harvard University Press Uh, Richard Epstein has just given us another fine book, and what a book it is, nearly 700 pages, densely packed uh, on the classical liberal constitution, subtitled The Uncertain Quest for Limited Government. You won't read it in a sitting. (coughs) It covers everything from a theory that stands behind the constitution, lending it legitimacy, to the history of its creation and interpretation over a wide range of subjects, covering everything from the document structure to property, contract, liberty, speech, religion, equal protection, and so much more. All from a classical liberal perspective of liberty through constitutionally limited government. Uh, it's a tour de force, I encourage you to get a copy, and in this season of giving, to get copies for your friends and relatives too, even if it's not exactly a stocking stuffer.
1: No, what? Um, <laughs> stocking stuffer? Good stuff, um, stuff, a very I'm going to give stock. you just
0: a summary of Richard's bio in order to save time for the program. Um, if I listed all of his uh, scholarly articles, we'd be here all day. He spent most of his career teaching every subject, uh, legal subject known to man uh, at the University of Chicago Law School, where he was the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law, Uh, and he remains Professor Emeritus and Senior Lecturer at uh, Chicago. Since uh, 2010, however, he's been the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at the New York University Law School. In addition to that, he's also the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, where he summers. Uh, winters, rather. with Winter. There, yes. Richard earned his B.A. at Columbia, summa cum laude, uh, after which he did a B.A. Juris at Oxford, and in just two years, uh, J.D. at Yale, which Yale awarded him only cum laude, doubtless with an eye to its okay. own reputation. Um, it, it, its reputation had to be... Uh, uh, attended to, of course. Um, well, from there, the rest is history, as we say. Uh, he, um, his 1985 book on takings made a cameo appearance during Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearings when then-Senator Joe Biden counseled the nominee before his committee that if he believed anything in that book, it would be a very short hearing. Uh, a surfeit of books followed, Bargaining with the State, Mortal Peril, Uh, Forbidden Grounds, Principles of a Free Society, Simple Rules for a Complex World, Cases and Materials in Torts, uh, and Cato's own uh, How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution, among others. His awards are many. uh, The Bradley Prize in 2011, for example. So here's the drill for today. Uh, Richard will speak for about an hour. What? But he'll he'll accomplish it in about 25 minutes. (laughs) Uh, Jess Braven will then comment for about 15 minutes at normal speed, after after which we'll know what Richard said. Uh, Our two speakers may uh, then want to exchange ideas for a bit, after which we'll open it up to questions from all of you in the audience, uh, and then have uh, lunch upstairs in our George M. Yeager Conference Center. Before we begin, uh, let me note that books are available just outside at a discount, and Richard will be glad to sign yours for you. Uh, Those of you watching on Cato's Simulcast can, of course, go to Amazon or to a fine bookstore near you, where we hope today's program will encourage you to buy a book for yourself. So without further ado, here's Richard Epstein. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Roger. Um, My association with the Cato Institute began before it got corrupted in Washington uh, when it was an operation that worked out of Menlo Park, I believe in 1977 or so, and I think I attended on a subject I cannot recall, the first conference that Cato had ever formed. So at this particular point, I kind of bookend Cato. I was there at the beginning and I'm still here some 30 odd years later at the end. And I'm going to talk about a set of issues, I think, which in fact are very close to people at the Cato Institute and very close to, should be virtually everybody else. I'd also like to say a special word of thanks to Roger, whom I've now known for, I guess, close to 40 years, because he was a graduate student in the Department of Philosophy at the time that I was teaching at the law school, and I don't know if I was formally on his committee, but we certainly interacted at that time. He was then under the influence of a man named Alan Gaworth, um, who was a very distinguished philosopher, who, as I mentioned to several people in the audience, tried to square the circle, by doing something that no classical liberal could do and which every progressive attempts to do, which is to have a theory in which you defend individual autonomy on the one hand and believe that people have a right to well-being supported by other individuals on the other. And in fact, what this book is about in many ways is trying to explain why it is that that faculty or that philosophy is unsustainable in the long run unless it is subject to serious modification and to do so in a variety of ways. Uh, so, most of what I'm going to talk about today are canons of constitutional interpretation, which are meant to be in many ways as critical of many originalists, like Justice Scalia, as they are of many progressives. Uh, but before I do that, I think it's probably appropriate for, you, for me to set the book in context. Um, I have written this book, I guess, over a period of about seven or eight years, constantly get interrupted by other projects, but it is a kind of a lifetime summation. And you might want to think of it as an effort to define and to identify a third way of American constitutionalism that gets you out of the hands of the conservatives on the one hand and the progressives on the other. And the basic argument that I make with respect to this book is that both sides of that particular debate are in many ways misguided. Let me just start with a very short critique of what I regard as wrong with progressives with respect to one of the elements which is very powerful in intellectual circles. And that's the question of what is the status of the doctrine of judicial restraint? And there is no question, in effect, that modern constitutional law in the last, say, 50 or 60 years has been completely obsessed with the question, what is the standard of review? What is the attitude? What are the set of institutional arrangements which should govern the way in which judges behave? Uh, The 19th century strategy was rather different. You looked at a text and you tried to figure out what it meant, and then you applied it one way or the other. Modern people engage in this extensive preliminary self-psychosis and analysis, and what they come up with is the notion that they ought to be very careful before they interfere with the operation of the political branches of government. And there are two difficulties, I think, with this particular position. Um, One of them, there's absolutely no textual warrant, in many cases, for adopting a position of judicial restraint. Um, If you wish to be accurate with respect to original intention and with textual design, If there are broad protections that are inserted into a constitution, then there is an obligation to breed them broadly. And so if you have a clause which says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, it doesn't mean some kinds of public property, it doesn't mean possession, it means the full range of private property institutions as they've developed at common law and by the statutes which are designed to supplement and to expand its operation like recordation statutes on the one hand and the statute of frauds on the other. If there's a provision which starts to deal with the protection of freedom of speech, you can't talk about just speech. You also have to talk about freedom. And it turns out there is no one-sentence version of what we mean to freedom. It's a rather elaborate theory which tries to constantly talk about the uh, need for individual autonomy on the one hand and the need to prevent one individual from trespassing on the like liberties of others as a second part to this particular theory. So in my view, if the moment you start to end into a situation of judicial restraint, uh, you are not faithful to constitutional text, you are not faithful to constitutional meaning. Uh, The causes of this, of course, are very great. Um, If one looks around and tries to figure out what is wrong with respect to governments over the world, you come to the very melancholy conclusion that, by and large, they are failed experiments. In some cases, like with Russia, they are failed experiments which continue to repeat each other at an alarming rate. And the question is, what is the source of that? And well, it turns out to be the dominance of the legislative and the executive branches, it turns out to be the fact that any rule of law that they promulgate um, will be binding on the individuals whom they wish to oppress, but any law which is designed to limit their behavior is hopelessly ambiguous and therefore should be given whatever favorable interpretation an ingenious court can be able to identify in the particular case. So what happens, in effect, with the judicial restraint situation is that in the effort to stop judicial abuse on the one hand, you open the way up to congressional and executive power abuse on the other, and the art of government is not one that shuts down all abuse. You can never do that with a set of institutions so complicated, but you're trying to figure out how you limit the sum of the abuses of three branches of government, and you do not do that by saying, in effect, uh, that the court should stand aside on major constitutional issues, and that the legislature and the executive should, in fact, have full branch. Uh, To give some explanation as to why it is that this theory actually works when you start to apply it, uh, what I would like to do is to point to a couple of areas in which classical liberal principles have uh, had fairly powerful influence, and then ask yourself whether or not you think that they have had baleful social consequences. One of them is, with the exception of recent stuff on campaign financing, all of the material with respect to freedom of speech is in fact organized along classical liberal lines. We have broad definitions as to what count as speech, including other forms of aggression, rather of expression, not aggression. We have justifications that could limit speech based upon force and fraud. We have fairly sharp limitations on the kind of remedies that could be imposed. Uh, Then when you look at something like the Dormant Commerce Clause, even people like Justice Stevens are extremely astute in the way in which they examine taxation and regulation to make sure that they do not deviate from the requirements that are needed in order to show open competition across state lines. And so the Justice Jackson, who gave us Wicked and Filburn, also gave us um, some other cases, um, Hood against Lamont, for example, in which he essentially defends free competition across state lines. And that jurisdiction and that jurisprudence turns out to be perfectly sustainable over the long haul. And it remedies, ironically, one of the defects in the original Constitution and namely the fact that we did not have any strong limitations in the federal government that could prevent state aggrandizement, of, of state aggrandizement through protectionism um, and uh, various interference with interstate travel and communications and the like. So you have all of these things going on simultaneously. So I think, in effect, to some extent, uh, that the judicial restraint model uh, does not and should not be given the kind of paramount respect that it often happens. Now, when you go to the other side, we take into account the progressives, they have a view which in many ways overlaps that associated with conservative judges. Uh, the progressives also believe uh, that the courts ought not to interfere with respect to the general regulation of the economic system of the United States, although in many cases they will, sometimes right and sometimes wrong, protect various forms of individual liberties against government oversight and control. But the difference between them and the judicial restraint types is that most conservative judges support legislation they don't like, whereas most progressive judges support legislation that they do like. And the question is, well, why do they do this? And, well, essentially they believe that the definition of a market failure in many cases is a competitive market, They regard that these things, in fact, create inequality of bargaining power, that they result in massive inequalities of wealth. But what they forget in all of these cases is that the presumption with respect to any voluntary contract is that it produces gains between the parties. Uh, The more rapid you could get these transactions going forward, the larger the sum of the gains will be, and that the need to worry about contracts is largely confined to antitrust-type risks, on the one hand, and conspiracy risks to commit violence and fraud and other kinds of things. So the progressives essentially developed a series of strongly anti-competitive institutions through the 1930s, the Motor Vehicle Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Civil Aeronautics Act, the National Labor Relations Act, and so the list goes on. And each and every one of these, it turns out, has sapped the strength of the American country, American Republic, and has made it more difficult for us to grow the nation in a way that solves huge numbers of problems. Make no mistake about it, when there is a political decline and an economic shrinkage, what you do is you get more ugliness and more factional behavior than you do if you could consistently expand an economy. And the progressives have lost sight of that particular lesson, and so what they do is they insist that the Constitution ought to evolve and become living, and that all of the changed social circumstances, in fact, require that there be greater government intervention, when in fact the exact opposite conclusion is true the more efficient markets are different, at a distance, the more likely it is that you could get yourself into competitive equilibrium, the less case there is for balkanization and special interest legislation to be done at either the federal or the state level. So the question then is how does this relate to what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is the techniques of interpretation that you bring uh, to the Constitution. And what I'd like to describe myself is as some kind of an originalist, but I want to make it very clear where my originalism comes from. It mainly comes from two sources. One is I've taught for over 40 years now courses in Roman law, and they have very elaborate doctrines of interpretation on statutes that are remarkably similar to the ones that we find in the Constitution, and which receive extensive elaboration uh, through the entire process of interpretation. This interpretation is not a living constitution interpretation. What it says is, if you know the basic classical liberal theory and you see a text, whether you're living in ancient Rome, medieval England, or modern United States, the question of how you read it is exactly the same for exactly the same reason. So if you take the Roman example, the basic statute says you're not allowed to kill a herd animal or a slave of either sex. And what you develop from that is an elaborate theory which deals with assumption of risk, with consent, um, with defense of third parties, necessity, so on down the line. And so it is when you see a general command in the United States Constitution that when you do originalism, you have to be aware of the long tradition, which says there's a vast difference between understanding how particular texts are situated in a larger social context from the kind of narrow textualism that sometimes is said to be the be-all and the end-all of constitutional interpretation. Now, to say all of this is not to say that textualism doesn't matter. Quite the opposite, when you read particular provisions in the Constitution and you see that words are used in more than one place, you ought to move with great degree of concern to make sure that the meanings that they receive when written at the same time are consistent with one another. So if you take something like the Commerce Clause Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. You have to do that with respect to the commerce. That's also referred to in the next subsection of Article I, Section 8, namely the ability to regulate commerce that moves in and out of ports and the question of how it is that you make sure that entry and exit is not subject to various kinds of local prohibition. There is no way that when you're dealing with Congress and commerce and ports, you're talking about the manufacture within the United States. There is no way, if you're trying to figure out how it was, unfortunately, in a slave economy, you were able to preserve state autonomy, that you could ever read the Commerce Clause, so as to say, that you could regulate internal and domestic production. So that when you start to think about the question of what the scope of the Commerce Clause is, you have to be aware not only of the textual meaning of it, as read by all the clauses in the Constitution, the institutional framework, but also take into account its standard meaning in literary texts and a philosophical texts at the time, and none of it squares up with the reading that one ends up with in Wicked and Filburn, nor can it, in effect, get you to the fantasy that Wicked and Filburn is nothing more when it supports the price-fixing arrangements under the Agricultural Adjustment Acts that it's the same thing as Gibbons and Ogden, which was concerned with allowing free passage of a boat from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, into New York State Harbor. They are working in different orbits, and this is well understood by Chief Justice Marshall and deliberately obscured, unfortunately, by Justice Jackson when he wrote his most famous opinion. So then what is it that you're doing in constitutional interpretation once you get yourself the meaning questions correct? Well, you have to worry about various kinds of difficulties in taking a single prohibition And trying to figure out how you work it into a general one. And it doesn't matter under these circumstances whether you're talking about First Amendment protection of freedom of speech or Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. And the first thing that you always have to do is to remember that this is a doctrine, which is, or document rather, which is designed to protect against various kinds of abuses by various sorts of individuals. If, in fact, what you do is you define your protection so narrowly, there will be obvious evasions for it. The example I give now of philosophical sophistication in a perverse sense is my grandson Noah at age three. His mother sits up there and says, Noah, you cannot hit anybody. And Noah looks at his mother and smiles and then promptly kicks you in the shins. Um, he understands, essentially, that the principle of the narrow command literally interpreted allowed him to evade the command Uh, and get everything that he wanted. So we can't talk about hitting. We have to talk about the direct application of force. And if you go back to the Roman text, they go forever in talking about hitting and kicking and holding people and all the rest of the stuff, because what they're worried about is what we should be worried about under the Constitution, that, in fact, if what you do is you uh, prohibit certain kinds of activities and you allow other activities of the government to take place, uh, you're not going to be able to achieve all the goals that you want. So it's not just a question of stopping speech, it's also a question of limiting it, throwing burdens on it. It's not just speech that you have to protect, you have to protect other kinds of analogous activities like sign language or dancing or other kinds of situations. And the basic intuition is, if you know what the basic function is of the particular clause, you cannot allow these evasions to artificially narrow and strangle the particular provision in question. And the... Basic way in which we read the First Amendment reflects all of that, because all the treatises, they don't talk about speech anymore. They tend to talk about expression in order to catch the broader notions. And this is perfectly consistent with the way in which classical liberals and classical scholars in Roman times interpreted basic text. Well, the second part that you have to worry about in this particular enterprise is the question of whether or not these texts are categorical commands or whether or not they're just presumptions. And if one starts to go back and think about the system of pleading, which, by the way, was developed with tremendous sophistication as early as Gaius in 160 or so A.D., what you discover is that every command that you would assent to is a command which is a presumption and not an absolute. Uh, so when we said that you're not allowed to kick, we didn't mean that you're not allowed to kick in self-defense. If we say you're not allowed to lie, it doesn't mean that you can't lie in self-defense or in defense of your children. So one of the reasons why the famous Kantian parable is so far off base is that when he announces, oh, you must tell the truth, and the person who comes into the room says, tell me where your children are hid so that I can kill them, most of us would say, if I could certainly kill him to protect my children, I could lie to him in order to get him off the scent. So that all acts of hitting, all acts of fraud, all acts of misstation, of misstatements are in fact presumptive wrongs, but not absolute wrongs, and then you have to have a theory of self-defense in part to explain why these things are permissible. You need a theory of consent to do it as well, because in case you don't know it, generally it's okay to bluff and poker, right? notwithstanding the fact that it's a deliberate lie intended to deceive and mislead other individuals for the loss of money. But I don't believe you could state an actionable case for misrepresentation in this particular context. So then how is it that you try and figure out what these defenses are about? And the only way you can do so is to structure the defenses to take into account the very theory that animated the articulation of the prima facie case in the first instance. And so if we are concerned about aggression, if in fact we allow a defense of self-defense, Basically, the aggressor now knows that there'll be a response, it will reduce the probability of the initial wrong, and the great benefits associated with the rule will not necessarily be in the flawless resolution of difficult cases where it's sometimes taught to figure out who is the aggressor and who is not. It will be in the general prophylactic situation in which there'll be fewer acts of aggression by virtue of the fact that a predictable response will take place. And so reading something like the First Amendment essentially has to build into a system of tort law. You have rules about assault, which are threats of force. You have rules with respect to defamation. You have rules with respect to um, fraud. And if you understand the way this thing has worked, the great strength of First Amendment jurisprudence is that when it does its balancing interests, it doesn't do it on some nondescript form. But for the most part, you can announce that the following proposition is always true give me any constitutional provision that you wish to take seriously, i.e. give it either intermediate or strict scrutiny, the consequence will always be that when you articulate it through the courts, it will turn out to be classical liberal in its form and structure, meaning, in effect, there's a strong initial production which can be overridden to take into account such difficulties as force and fraud, and in more modern contexts, take into account such difficulties as non-cooperative behavior and bankruptcy and so forth." So just the other day, it's not in the book because you keep on learning after you write it. I was working on another project, and there was a Holmes opinion, and he was talking about how it is that the contracts clause at the state level does not bar regulation in order to protect against bank runs. And he didn't say that there wasn't an impairment of contract in the way in which you oversaw the bank. What he says that the nature of the regulations that you impose Will be universal across the industry, and the stability that you could create in the banking system gives everybody adequate compensation for the particular losses in question. So, not only is there a just compensation, uh, a, a basically a, a police power defense, is also a just compensation situation, which is also built into the Constitution. You look at the Fourth Amendment, and you start seeing things like the emergency doctrine and the consent document, and so forth, essentially, to the extent that that body of law is trying to replicate in the explication of reasonableness with respect to search and seizures, are uh, the classical liberal principle, what happens is the same set of prima facie cases, the same issues of extension, oh, can we search, can we peer through your windows using goggles and stuff like that, can we detect smoke emanations, these are all efforts to figure out the scope of the protection, and then on the second hand you have exactly the same problem as before, what are the affirmative defenses that are there, uh, this model is so powerful that it not only covers Uh, individual rights. It also covers structural kinds of provisions. I referred earlier to the Dorman Commerce Clause. And sure enough, there are ways in which you could limit commerce into your state. And what's the purpose to prevent livestock from being killed by food or by other kinds of insects for which they are peculiarly vulnerable? Maine against Taylor is the leading case on this subject. It is a perfect classical liberal opinion, even though the judges who write it do not acknowledge this particular point at all. And the third feature of every system that you have to do with these open-ended provisions is to figure out how it is that you determine the appropriate set of remedies once you've taken into account both the liabilities on the one hand and the defenses on the other. And what you see is that you replicate the same kind of choices that you have at common law in dealing with injunctions on the one hand, damages on the other one of the great mischiefs of the calabresi Mohammed article is they treat these things as though they're in discrete buns, so that it's either damages on the one hand or injunctions on the other. Every sophisticated judge in 18th-century equity courts knew that you mixed and matched these things in various ways. You could have conditional injunctions, you could have cleanup damages, you had all sorts of permutations. And the effort of this system is to try to figure out how it is that you get maximum. Um, deterrence of the wrongful conduct without killing the kinds of conduct that you want to see take place. If you go through this system substantively, the one thing that becomes very clear is that the Roman situation of damn them abscrenuria and the modern economic situation of pecuniary externalities are essentially a dominant feature of the system. There are many people who believe in what we call the harm principle from John Stuart Mill, can't do anything to harm anybody else, but if you say that every time you sell a good at a lower price and a higher quality than your competitor, you're engaged in harmful activity, you have yourself all the doctrines of ruinous competition, which led to the huge onslaught of misguided progressive legislation starting in the 1930s and competing unlimited to the day. Damn them abscreniori was Roman for saying, uh, we did hurt you, but it was not unlawful. Pecuniary externalities is the modern economic way of saying you got a financial loss, but it's not something that's actionable within the system because it's not something like pollution, which actually leads to negative sum games. So to understand how this apparatus works, you have to do a little bit of modern game theory. Uh, the long and the short of it is as follows. To the extent that you have remedial structures that are imposed that reduce the size of the pie, they're out to the extent that you have remedial structures that are designed to preserve a competitive equilibrium by public actions when private ones don't work, you're basically in a pretty good place that's the way we ought to think about these issues, and in areas like speech, we tend to think that way. In areas of general economic regulation, it's a complete disaster in many cases, because whereas the private law standard on injunctions is one of imminent peril, the modern standard on public regulation is one of perpetual permitting without any particular reason as to why this particular permit is needed in this particular case, is adding years to development without any discernible benefits. So the principles of constitutional interpretation as a matter of first principle, in fact, lead you to a very different version of originalism. It cannot be pure textualism, because the three questions I mentioned all require you to go beyond the text and to embrace the theory. And that leads me to the last point, which I'll make three more minutes, Roger. Um, And then I will stop and let Jess come, which is I talk in this book at great length about something which I call the prescriptive constitution. And for those of you who don't understand a lot of the intricacies of private law, Prescription is the type of situation which allows a given person, through constant misuse of somebody else's property, to obtain a property right. So the standard illustration is I keep walking across your lawn, and after 20 years, instead of this being a repeated trespass, it now becomes an easement implied by virtue of prescription, that is, long use without opposition. Well, it turns out the Constitution has its own prescription problem. Um, As I try to point out at great length in the book, The number of cases in which there are real mistakes in constitutional design at the time of the framing is very large. It covers such cases as Marbury and Madison um, having to do with the scope of judicial review. It covers the ability of federal courts to oversee state courts in Martin and Hunter's Lessee. It covers the creation and operation of the lower courts. Uh, It covers the creation of the vice president's office as it was originally conceived. Lots of other things. Some of these things, in fact, are ironed out by judicial interpretation, which are, to put it mildly, wrong as a matter of textualism under originalist principles. That is, when you're dealing with the structural principles, if there's an explicit commitment to a kind of institutional arrangement which may not be ideal, you can change it by maximizing or fiddling with the text. But 200 years later, you see how the principles work, and you ask yourself the question, do we want to get rid of these things? And with respect to judicial review, the answer is no, because the system is only coherent. As it turned out, it was, as it evolved rather than as it was created. Do you want to get rid of the dormant Commerce Clause, which is textually su- very suspect? Answer no, because it promotes various kinds of economic liberties. Do you want to get rid of Plessy v. Ferguson, which created a systematic um, form of segregation throughout the South and much of the rest of the nation, Doesn't seem to me that that's a form of classical liberal judgment. Uh, So at the first opportunity to dismantle those things, you want to take them, and to remember that as matters of government enforcement, uh, John Marshall Holland I was correct when he talked about a colorblind constitution, which, of course, is what is required by the general application of the civil and criminal law as developed in the classical liberal principles. So the reason why constitutional interpretation is so difficult is you're constantly worried with two problems. One is the very serious problems of textual interpretation, and where some of these clauses are rather nasty, like fugitive slave, others of which we keep, which turn out to be deeply problematic unless you can set them against the background of classical liberal theory, and then you have to deal with the problem of mistake. If you get something wrong, do you keep with the error? Do you try to reverse it? Do you try to reverse it in one shot or in many shots? That's a much harder set of judgments to make, but the important point to make here in this brief time is just this one which is if you don't distinguish amongst the various problems, you'll never get any of them correctly solved. And a lot of what I'm trying to do when I talk about originalism in Chapter 3 is to basically break down a problem in order to be able to get beyond the debates which say, well, originalism is a matter of intent. No, it's a matter of public meaning and so forth. It turns out both of those things are relevant to the debate, as they are in the interpretation of any standard contract or statute, but they're far from the whole story. And then the rest of the book, the other 33 chapters, is an effort to take this framework and to apply it to all the cases that Roger referred to when he introduced me. So thank you so much for your patience. I'm looking forward to hear what Jess has to say.
0: Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, We're now going to have comments. We're very fortunate to have them from uh, Jess Braven. Who covers the um, Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal, after earlier postings with the journal um, as U- United Nations correspondent and editor of the Wall Street Journal California Weekly. Uh, Jess is the author of uh, *The Terror Courts*, out just this year from Yale. Uh, he's also the author of a new account of uh, that's an, a new account of military trials uh, at Guantanamo Bay. He's also uh, the author of um, Squeaky, The Life and Times of Lynette Alice Frome, which uh, St. Martin's published in 1997. He's contributed to books including Violence in America, and encyclopedia, and Crimes of War 2.0. His work has been recognized with the Elizabeth Newfer Memorial Prize for coverage of the International Criminal Court, the American Bar Association's Civil Galville. Award for coverage of legal response to 9-11, and with the Wall Street Journal team, the National Press Foundation's Excellence in Online Journalism Award for coverage of the Supreme Court's health care case. Prior to joining the journal, Jess uh, wrote for publications, including The Washington Post, Harper's Bazaar, and Spy Magazine, uh, evaluated scripts for a Hollywood talent agency, managed a campaign for a local school board, While in law school, he served as a member of the University of California Board of Regents and the Berkeley, California Police Review Commission. Uh, He's also led the effort to designate uh, Raymond Chandler Square in Hollywood uh, in honor of uh, the hard-boiled novelist. Uh, Jess is a graduate of Harvard College and the University of California, Berkeley Bolt Hall School of Law. Please welcome Jess Braven.
2: Well, uh, thanks, thanks, Roger, and thanks for for inviting me here to talk about uh, uh, Richard's uh, expansive book. But uh, I will say that um, uh, because it is uh, emphatically the province and duty of the press to say what the news is rather than to comment on the correct uh, outcome of various events and cases, I I think rather than than, uh, offer a critique, I I might raise some questions, and uh, I'd be thrilled if Richard would jump in and and use up my time. I
1: didn't set this up, folks. So, um,
2: the uh, and, and first of all, as you know, as uh, as you said, there uh, as with with any uh, uh, great provocative work, there are things here to uh, uh, at least uh, annoy uh, people on all sides. Uh, in the uh, in in one of the early chapters that uh, that I read, you set up your uh, uh, the, sort of the dichotomy uh, between um, uh, uh, well, you 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 you. you You pick out two uh, important strands of of constitutional jurisprudence uh, and point out why they're wrong. Uh, And one is uh, the the uh, the off-beaten horse of Eighth Amendment jurisprudence uh, that uh, Chief Justice Warren said in 1958 uh, takes its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. And you explain why you think uh, the court was wrong to continue that uh, that, uh, approach. But then also you talk about uh, the, the Heller case and the more recent Second Amendment jurisprudence and why you think the court was mistaken to expand uh, its concept of individual rights to include uh, uh, weapons and, and gun possession. Uh, and so uh, there's something uh, in each of those critiques to disturb one aspect of the court. And there's something in both of those critiques to disturb Justice Kennedy, who was, of <laughs> course, uh, in the majority uh, on, uh, on both of the cases that you that you uh, single out, so it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's fun to read, and as well as being quite provocative and, and thoughtful. But uh, you know, jumping ahead to the the end of the of the book, uh, if and, and and as Roger said, you touch on many things from individual rights uh, to uh, obviously to you know the to the, uh, uh, the criminal justice, all kinds of things, free speech. But I suppose if there's there's one single thing that you might be targeting with a book, uh, it's the, uh, the 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 dissent of Justice Holmes in Lochner, where he says that the Constitution does not embody any particular economic theory and, a, a, a yes, and you're well, I stand corrected, I'm standing and I've been corrected. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: but the uh, the uh, uh, but the the point being that that throughout the book, I guess the the overarching theme is that the Constitution does embody an economic theory to a degree at least, and and that is uh, uh, you know perhaps not in all its extreme, but uh, the the free market, laissez faire approach that began to get regulated significantly uh, in the early twentieth century and then on in the Progressive era. So that is that I would you know seems to be the the uh, you know the the overall theme and the. And that sort of led me to uh, uh, you know, some some questions that I might might ask ask you. Uh, okay, um, you spend a lot of time explaining how the framers and in the founding era was uh, the, the, there was a you know concern for uh, factionalism and uh, uh, unbridled populism and therefore various mechanisms to restrain the uh, the powers of of direct democracy and democracy were included in the constitution. But of course, at that time, the polity was basically the people who drafted the constitution and people like them who were, uh, aristocrats of a sort of their time. They were of course, all white, all men, all Protestants and so forth. And at the time the franchise was limited by property restrictions, which you say served uh, in some ways a valuable purpose, Uh, as well as restrictions on, by uh, race and sex and uh, religious affiliation. And over the centuries since then, the polity has expanded, sometimes through constitutional amendment, and sometimes through more subtle means. And therefore, the number of people and the types of people who have an economic interest to protect through the institutions of government has increased. The diversity of, of their positions in the, in the economy has increased. You know, from a time when one of the interests being protected, of course, and you certainly don't defend it, but you acknowledge it—you know, slaveholding—to now a much broader sense. So, so I wonder what it is. Why is it a failure of the of proper constitutional thinking as the increased polity, the more diverse and broader polity, begins to seek to protect its interests the way the very small subset of society protected its interests in the first.
1: Uh, or instance. All right, you want me to answer the question? Yes. All right. Should I sit or stand? What would you like me to do?
0: I'll sit right here. Yeah, yeah I think these are
1: terrific questions. Right. They're so pointed. They're so direct. And, you know, each of these charges can get an enormous level response. I will try to keep it short, but I'm not going to succeed. Um, <laughs> and, and let me just sort of take them in order. The question about Heller. Um, this is a classic illustration that in order to understand the way the Second Amendment is read, What you have to be able to do is to understand its relation to the militia clause, Uh, several of them, in fact. And in fact, let me tell you a story about this. In uh, July of 1986, I got a call from General Bruce Jacobs, retired of the National Guard Officers Association, saying that he had been told on reliable information that I was an expert on the militia clause, and they desperately needed my help to deal with an appropriations bill in the Congress. Well, I told him the truth. I said, what's the militia clause, I said. And he says, the militia clause. And this is an article of faith to the guard because it's the modern-day descendant of the militia. And I said, oh, you mean the Second Amendment? He didn't mean that at all. He meant the militia clause. And what I did is I actually went back to the Constitution and I read it. And what I told Mr. Jacobs was I didn't know the first thing about the militia clause, but he should not worry about that. That's true of everything I've ever spoken and worked about. Uh, And nobody else knows much about it either anyhow, so let's figure it out. Well, it turns out there are several clauses in the Militia Clause which deal with the distribution of power between the federal and state government. They're quite complex, and one of them is, in fact, the only explicit division of authority under the Constitution between the ability of the states to essentially command with their own officers the militia and to be able to train and to arm them in accordance with a discipline, that is a regimen which is set by the federal government. And this was an elaborate compromise, which was demanded to make sure that you had state militias that were independent of the federal government, with their own offices, but be called into national services in the event of disunion or foreign invasion or rebellion, which, of course, was a serious issue in the late 18th century. And it turned out that they could not be called into question just by the president, but had to be done pursuant to law. So what you do is you're having here a system which is designed to create a very elaborate compromise in structure at a time when the Constitution itself was dealing with the serious risk of wars between the state independent of the civil war that followed. Now, what the Militia Clause is designed to do, in my view, is to stabilize those relationships. So when it says the, um, a militia, a well-regulated militia, is necessary for the security of a free state, capital S, free state does not mean any random floating nation. Uh, The way in which Justice Scalia reads it in Heller, it means a free state, which are the ones who are governed by the protocols in the militia clause that are found in Article 1. Well regulated means that consistent with the basic framework. These are the guys who are in charge of regulating them. And it means that the federal government cannot infringe on the right to keep and bear arms, because if it can do so, it can upset the way in which the state militias operate. And so what we do is we have a provision which is designed to make sure that the federal government cannot interfere with the states, if you read the two things in correspondence one to another. Uh, The first thing that follows from this is that the militia clause has no application only in one place, which is Washington, D.C., Uh, Because that's the situation in which you have direct control through territorial situations, and you don't have any of the federal and state interactions. And if you go through Justice Scalia's arguments, all of the explications associated with uh, the meaning of keep and bear arms are irrelevant unless you get the basic structural threshold correctly. And what does he do by way of interpretation? He makes, I believe, two Serious mistakes. One is he takes that first clause instead of showing the connection to the rest of the Constitution and treats it as peccatory and he knocks it out. So, you know, generally speaking, if you've got 28 words in a constitutional provision and 14 of them are just thought to be wind up, you're not doing constitutional interpretation, you're doing constitutional amendment. But of course, if you just say the right to bear, keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, that then becomes an absurdity unless you read it in classical liberal tradition which is to talk about police power justifications. And so what you have to do is, having knocked out 14 words, read it in a bunch of other words with respect to the police power. And what Justice Scalia said rightly, in my view, is if this is a serious constitutional um, provision, you can't use rational basis. You have to use some level of intermediate scrutiny. But he's gone down the wrong path. Well, if he's got it wrong there, what do you do about the next case in McDonald? And that's a case in which the state is doing direct regulation of its own people. And I am not a fan of most of what these people want to do. I basically think that the uh, more guns, less crime situation is more true than false, although obviously not perfect. But I don't see any way in which you can incorporate against the states a provision which is designed to keep the federal government from regulating what the states can do. So is there any way to get there? Well, there may be. You have to go through privileges and immunities, and this gives you a real difficulty because what you see when you go through the privileges or immunities clause, it was read wrongly, in my view, in the slaughterhouse cases to cover only, quote, federal rights, the ability to petition governments and to use navigable waterways instead of being a basic charter of liberties um, to make sure that the states could not oppress their citizens. And, of course, if one remembers in Crookshank, uh, what the newly elected southern states did was they disarmed their southern blacks and then proceeded to slaughter them. Uh, so what they did is they said in the Privileges and Immunities Clause, um, right to keep and bear arms may be there, which is an alternative path. The difficulty is it's not in Caulfield and Coriel, which is the 1824 case that defined it, so you have to do later stuff to get it, but that's not incorporation of the Second Amendment, Right. That is simply a question of reading privileges and immunities. And if you're going to read the armed stuff in there, you've got to read everything when Lochner and his friends back in there as well. And so the Supreme Court being bound by its own previous interpretation, there's a prescriptive constitutional work at, uh, argument at work, you can't get there. So that's a, a serious sort of situation, and he's just plain wrong um, in terms of the way in which you read this clause. I mean, I, I don't mean this in any kind of casual way. I think it's just erroneous. Uh, but let's go to the next case is Alabama against Miller, which is a cruel and unusual punishment, right? Well, that's the constitutional clause. No, it's not the constitutional clause. Um, what is striking about Judge Kagan's opinion and many of the others is they always leave the, the S off of the word punishments. The clause case taken straight from the English Bill of Rights. It refers to cruel and unusual punishments in the plural, and its clear intention under these circumstances is to prescribe a list of punishments which shall not be used in the United States torture or whatever it is that you think belongs on that list to get from that a principle of proportionality means you have to excise the x and now assume rather the s at the end of it and assume that the constitution is a roving scale which allows you to decide as justice kennedy wanted to do oh you know child rape i don't think that's uh consistent with evolving standards somebody then points out hey you know we made that a capital offense against military personnel and some people will take mild disagreement when a 300-pound man rapes an 8-year-old girl, Uh, but he knows what evolving standards of decency are completely unhinged. Uh, Justice Kagan's opinion is no better on this issue, and when the conservatives come forward and say you can interpret the Constitution as it's written and not as you would like it to be, this would be exhibit A as to why it is that they are correct on that particular point. And note, you know, I am basically bipartisan. Uh, I think there's one conservative opinion much better than the uh, opinion in the Miller-type case, which is wrong in one way, and then a liberal opinion, which turns out to be wrong in the other way. I'm not using evolving principles. I think it is, in fact, a series of constitutional interpretations that a flat prohibition against certain kinds of punishments is not a presumptive norm of right and wrong conduct. So it's not like freedom of speech where you have to worry about defenses and exceptions. It's just a limit on one of the things that government can do, and the rest of the apparatus comes to one side. Uh, Moving to the Lochner case, I mean, I think the Holmes opinion is dastardly bad. Um, um, And if you actually read some of its language, you could see the harshness in what he says. One of the sentences that Jess did not close is he says, I think the definition of liberty in the 14th Amendment is perverted if it goes beyond the ability to limit physical death and incarceration. Perverted is a very strong term. And now I ask you, here's a question. I'm going to give you the following prohibition. It says, Congress or any state may pass any law restricting any system from ever entering into a contract in the future. So you want to go out and buy clothes, food, shelter? Uh-uh. Sorry. Freedom of contract is not covered by the 14th Amendment. The only thing that is covered is incarceration and killing. People would say that that is absolutely nutty. And indeed, they would do so because there are two basic commands that one needs for liberty. One is freedom from aggression, and one is the entitlement to engage in various forms of cooperation amongst persons. So he then starts to talk about how it's a shibboleth to deal with public regulation— but again, he's not talking about regulation in his other cases that deal with contractual freedom. He's talking about vaccination laws, widely misunderstood as Jacobson. He's talking about whether or not you could run a post office, the creation of public goods. It is simply sloppy and indefensible arguments to go from standard government functions consistent with classical liberal principles, uh, contagion risk in public facilities and essential facilities, to assume that you can now interfere with private voluntary contracts. Well, he then says, in effect, well, a constitution does not meant to involve a theory of laissez-faire or Mr. Herbert Spencer's social static, or a theory of the individual with respect to the organic relation of a person to the state. And I correct the jacks; I should not have intervened, <laughs> but the word was not the constitution, it was a constitution. And yes, the Soviet constitution is in fact decidedly giving you all sorts of positive rights on paper, which you never get in practice. But our Constitution, with the exception of a few clauses which have not stood the test of time, are the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Three-Fifths Clause, are not classical liberal principles, is exactly designed to embody that, to, that system because, in effect, you don't create institutions of federalism. You don't create separation of powers at the federal level. You don't create strong protections for property, speech, contract, and religion because you're utterly indifferent to the way in which a particular state ought to operate. He then says, oh, but don't worry about this. There's a traditional doctrine which says, oh, you know, the police power, according to Justice Peckham, allows you to regulate things uh, for reasons of health, safety, general welfare, and morals. And he says, I think that this regulation can be justified on the score of health. Well, you know, that's a very detailed and precise analysis. But what he doesn't do is actually ask whether it's true. And it turns out that if you go to the international free trade agreements, they all have the following kinds of provisions. You cannot put anti-competitive legislation in place in order to keep out uh, goods under the supposed ground of health. So you have to deal with the mixed cases. And if you say that the 10-hour statute is a health statute, you have to ask whether it's an anti-competitive statute as well. Read David Bernstein's book and you will see in painful detail that this is an anti-competitive statute. Heck, just read the previous provision in the statute, Section 9 which says that we're regulating sleeping quarters, ventilation and sleeping quarters in New York. Well, why do they put that there? Because in New York State, the non-union bakers, many of whom were aliens, worked two shifts and slept in the middle. So they worked 16-hour days, as it were, sleeping seven. And the union workers worked in two shifts. When the New York Times was a bit more sober. It basically, after Lochner came down in May of 1905, said, a victory against union oppression. They knew exactly what was going on. And the problem about Holmes is he did not recognize, as Peckham understood, that there were serious problems here. Now, Peckham, we have said, uh, was a terrible conservative. Well, for those of you who believe it, I suggest you go back and read his antitrust opinions in the late 19th century. Trans-Missouri and the United Traffic situation. This guy is an absolute bear on the antitrust laws insofar as they apply to horizontal monopolies. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. There are a series of bad arguments that are raised against them, and he plows them down with a relentless fury. He was a classical liberal, and he understood what the difference is. Now, so that, I think, explains this. What about laissez-faire, the clock? I'm going to give two more minutes on this. Populism, change in society. Um, This is another vicious canard, not vicious canard, common mistake about how classical liberal theory works. This is not a theory which was designed to deal with ancient societies. I said, you sign the same principles in Rome, medieval England, 19th century America, they're rather different. A Brooklyn kid, you know, Jewish kid from Brooklyn, sort of embraces these principles. I'm not doing it because they came straight out of the Talmud. It turns out, if you look at the way in which these principles are announced, they are infinitely expandable to include all people, all races, all times, You talk about the liberty of every individual to enter into contracts and to be free, to organize their lives. How does that relate to ethnic diversity? Well, it turns out if you prefer one thing by contract and I prefer another thing by contract, we don't have to devote so that one of us gets what we want and the other has to take something we do The basic principle of political theory on this is perfectly clear. The greater the heterogeneity in society, the smaller the government, because otherwise what you're going to do is to have these non-separable goods in which I get something I don't want so that you have to get something that you want. You want an illustration of that? Maternal and obstetrical care for men is being required under the Obamacare statute. Is exactly the kind of thing that you want to be able to deal with. So that one has to realize is that these principles are more relevant, more powerful, more correct today than they were. They let everybody into the tent. Uh, Jess was quite right to point out about the restrictions at the federal level of the franchise. This was a calculated compromise. Uh, The Senate was not elected directly at all because this was an ancient system. And at the House level, what they did is they say, use the rules that you pick for your most populous chamber. Because they did not want to get into the political struggle of picking favorites amongst rules, which they know would blow up the constitutional enterprise one way or another. Uh, so my view about this is, I defend these as timeless principles. I agree that new circumstances, cyberspace and whatever it is, require you be careful in their application. But if you understand the basic rules of individual liberties, limited police power, separation of powers, implicit in-kind compensation, uh, you will get things right. Every one of the mistakes that you can see in this doctrine were wrong when they were decided, were not influenced by the necessities of the time. They represent the kinds of intellectual confusions and downright error uh, that you found, for example, in Lochner against New York. And, you know, my view about it is... We are in bad enough times today. I'm not interested in trying to sugarcoat what I regard to be the intellectual blunders of a major order. I don't care as much about guns or punishments, but the ability to gut an economic system through regulation is the major peril of our times, and the Supreme Court stands hopelessly inadequate to deal with those problems, given its current ideology.
0: Okay, I'm sure that Jess has more questions. and I'm sure that to his questions there will be short answers that will suffice.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll, what I know is that I have to make these questions count. So, uh, in in your in your critique of of uh, you, you know you like 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 many others, you say the Supreme Court took a wrong turn in 1937. Uh, you also talk to a degree about I guess uh, some of the the earlier uh, versions of, of progressive thought, but both. You know, the, the there were there certainly were reasons that people articulated at the time, mm-hmm. and 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 problems that a lot of people, perhaps majorities of of Americans, mm-hmm. felt that uh, emerged in the uh, during the Industrial Revolution, during the, mm-hmm. the Gilded Age, that uh, that uh, progressive legislation regulation was uh, attempting to counter. For instance, you know, if you if you you know, to this day, if you read uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, you will probably have your stomach turned. There were things that were going on. Uh, at the time that were possible because of industrialization that didn't seem to be correcting of themselves that prompted legislation. Same thing in 1937 among the other things going on in the year uh, in the country was a horrible crippling depression that had begun during uh, a much more less a fair administration, and that at least led the public to think that they wanted a more uh, aggressive, governmental role in making sure thing and correcting for what they thought were, were failures or absences or uh, in, in gaps in the law that was intended to create this uh, uh, society uh, and some people also argue that whatever uh, social legislation economic legislation came up in the progressive era and then during the New Deal was not so much uh, the most radical uh, option but actually the most capitalistic option or alternative to a socialist revolution, that that was something that was discussed at the time, and uh, some argued that it was essentially finding enough play in the joints of a free enterprise system to keep the majority of the country uh, satisfied with the overall uh, free enterprise system, as opposed to making a much more radical break, which was certainly contemplated uh, in in this country and, and actually happened in other countries. Uh, you suggest that we're worse off today because of this this legislation uh, and the court opinions that have, have mm-hmm. upheld it. What what would have been a, a better response to say the, the contaminated food that uh, Upton Sinclair found, or the uh, national way the, the the poverty that, that swept across the uh, the country in, in the '30s? What what would have been better and uh, a solution? Or, or, in your, or a constitutional solution, that, or, or was it something that would just get better if left to
1: its own? Okay, well, first of all, you got to make sure that there's a disease before you have a cure. And uh, the jungle is a novel. It is not an accurate historical account. What went on was the politics. That is, there were two ways to get meat to market. One of them was to send them live and then to slaughter them. One of them was to slaughter them and then send them in refrigeration to market. The latter is in many ways dominant to the former, and what happens is if you are trying to protect the old system against the new slaughterhouses, what you do is you start announcing that stuff. There's actually a fine piece written by Jim Powell, who's an adamant laissez-faire defender, indicating, in fact, that this was just another application of the basic problem uh, that you use health regulation to stifle competition from new technology. Uh, you mentioned the FDA. Um, I teach stuff in the FDA. And it's interesting to understand what the 1906 Act is because most people have no idea what it contains. Well, the first thing to note about it is it did not allow the regulation of manufacture of drugs It only inside the states. because That was beyond the scope of Congress at the time under EC9. And it had to do with the transmission of, of contaminated goods across state lines. And there was not a peep of objection to that. Because, in fact, if they are contaminated and they are going across state lines, you meet both the Commerce Clause requirements, on the other hand, and you also meet the uh, safety requirements. If you look at the rate of advance in medical care at that period and the food purity, uh, it is simply astonishing. The life expectancy between 1900 and 1920 goes from 46-plus to 54 years of age. Uh, You get, for the first time... Accurate control of multiple diseases by understanding how vitamins work, which has nothing to do with the FDA, uh, the cure for insulin, which was essential or for diabetes through insulin isolation, was put together by two guys who can only be inside. That's insane. as best in banting. And they managed under this earlier system, to, between 1922 and 1924 and a half, they went from a laboratory idea to widespread dissemination through Eli Lilly, giving away free samples to those people who could not afford it. And by 1930, there was a normalized market in this area. If you had the FDA, you would still not be able to get this stuff through for their improvement. So, I mean, the destruction of the FDA starts because there is a series of, um, I can never remember the drugs, uh, a contamination expert. And so what they said is, you know, now that we've had contamination, they don't improve the inspection. They said that we can now test drugs abstractly for safety, which is a complete non-response. Uh, in the early period, the uh, defenses that you could use were that if the FDA wanted to call something in, they could ask for it, otherwise it passed to the market. It was only with for harris that they had the current system, which has been disastrous. One of the great achievements of for harris is to take hundreds of drugs off the market, which had been effective for many, many years, because they could not meet retroactively the clinical standards. Uh, the effort of the FDA to, quote, improve and protect our health has been one nonstop disaster. Insofar as it relates to medical innovation, and what we really need to do is to do exactly what you talked about worry about the contamination issue. So I would not yield a cent on that. Uh, The same thing with respect to the discussion of the Depression. Herbert Hoover was thought of as a defendant, a Democratic nominee for president in 1920. He was, by his own politics, something of a progressive. Calvin Coolidge, who has not said of Mr. Hoover, who was then his Secretary of Commerce, this darn man gives me lots of advice, all of it is wrong. It was Hoover who messed up the regulation of the spectrum with the Federal Radio Act of 1926. It was Hoover who convened all the states to get together to do bad zoning codes at the same time. It was Hoover who imposed 62% maximum tax brackets on various individuals. It was Hoover who signed the Norris-LaGuardia Act. It was Hoover who signed the Davis-Bacon Act, which basically was designed to suppress black labor competition going into the North. I mean, Hoover later understood that he was an engineer and got God forbid, should ever get involved in policy. He also did smoot he also did the deflation. Um, The only way you can stop risk from deflation is essentially to reinflate the currency at some particular cost. That's what you should have done. Instead, what you do is you have microeconomic cures for macroeconomic illnesses, and it only makes things worse. The great Roosevelt innovation did nothing to stop the deflation. What it did is it put in place several hundred cartels, which were designed to limit output and to essentially raise prices to enormous harm to people who were the urban poor, traced by serious documentation, because he had that... A crazy idea that if you have one fatal mistake, the way to do it is to correct it with another fatal mistake. So we had the worst of macro and micro economic policy taking period. Roosevelt understood none of this. He probably expanded the depression through the rest of the 30s um, because by 35 and 38, he was in cartel mode going strong. Um, the thing you do is you understand if you have regulations that kill you don't add more regulations to kill you faster. You deregulate and remove the mistake. Milton Friedman had this wonderful image, which applies here. He said, somebody said, there's a hole in the front of the boat. It's singing. And Milton said, well, the appropriate cure is to put a hole in the back of the boat so you can now level the thing out. Uh, And and that's what they did. I mean, this story which has come forward, um, Jess, I mean, I know it's conventional wisdom, Uh, But I'm going to now plead my advantage. My great advantage in doing constitutional law is I don't teach the subject as a primary subject. I've taught it once in my life. Uh, Once, not too often, but useful. I teach it in every other course that I do. Uh, But I know better than the constitutional lawyers how systems of taxation, corporation, contract torts, and so forth work. There are two ways to do constitutional law. Know nothing about the institutions that you're regulating. Something about your own views of living constitutions or to be fairly versed in detail in these areas and know that. So I taught the FDA because I wanted to be able to answer you. I taught the course in antitrust to answer you. I taught the course in administrative law, labor law, anti-discrimination law. You name it, I've taught it. Even water law, my favorite. Um, And what happens is if you cut to the Constitution from the bottom up, you simply have no truck with the standard top-down things. I mean, it is absurd to think that you have a group of constitutional lawyers with no direct knowledge of economics opining about the virtues of the collective bargaining statutes without even knowing what a holdout or a bargaining breakdown turns out to be. What we did in the New Deal is we took competitive industries and we cartelized them. We had lower efficiency at higher administrative costs, and that is the way in which we dealt with the Depression, and that's the way we're dealing with the current recession because it turns out the return of the term progressive comes from the fact that we're hearkening back to the golden days of 1935, a giant mistake.
0: We're going to have just one more quick round, and then we're going to get a couple of questions from you folks.
2: One thing, uh, uh, one suggestion you have in the book about uh, keeping the uh, uh, spending and social welfare legislation from getting out of line is to make sure that it's done at the state level, as opposed to the federal level, so that uh, businesses or individuals who don't want to support a, a safety net or whatever that they uh, feel is too expansive or is too much of a drag on them have this ability to to move uh, elsewhere. Um, the uh, and uh, the, the question is though, if if that is if states if all the states can individually decide to set up similar things, mm-hmm. why can't? Why, why is it a constitutional error for the people of all these states acting through their one universal institution, the, the Congress and the federal government, to do the same thing? Aren't the interests of the states sufficiently represented since the people who go to Washington are chosen by the people who live in those states?
1: No, I think that's completely wrong. Again, let me see if I could explain why. First of all, let's start at taxation at the federal level. Um, if you look at Article One, Section 8, Um, it's not uniform powers for taxation. It says the power to tax, you know, to pay the debt, this was Hamilton making sure you could nationalize that for coherence, provide for the common defense and for the general welfare of the United States. One of the striking weaknesses of the recent opinions on Obamacare is every one of the nine justices found that it was too expensive to put the words of the United States in when they talked about the general welfare, so they just talked about the general welfare full stop, and that, of course, gets you into the general views that this is a public good of helping other individuals. Uh, The reason that provision was put the other way is the same reason when you say about a corporation is that the board of directors and its officers can only act for the general welfare of the corporation. What is the one thing that that clause precludes? It's transfer payments at the federal level. Uh, You go back to the corporate analogy, and what I do is I take all the people on the left side of the room and tell them they're supposed to transfer wealth to people on the right side of the room, per se illegality, because the purpose of these collective institutions is to create Pareto improvements, and you know if you allow that kind of situation, the transfer payments will kill the investments that you would otherwise want to create in a voluntary market. Since the power of taxation is coercive and people don't have the power to opt out of it, it's even more important that that limitation be observed. When you're going 0 for 9 under the Obamacare situation, it's a serious problem. And if you're Justice Roberts, and what you then do is say, oh, you know what, this is not really a problem, see how broad it is, and you cite the child labor tax cases, basically you commit a constitutional heresy. Child labor tax cases stand for the fact that the principle of circumvention is alive and well at the constitutional level, meaning in the good sense. If you cannot directly prohibit um, for example, uh, the shipment in interstate commerce of goods made by firms that use child labor, you cannot suppress it through competition. The basic principle was if you can't regulate it under the commerce cause, you can't tax it under the taxing power. And if we had kept to that, he would have had to write the exact opposite opinion than the one he wrote, which has led to the current, shall we say, embarrassments of the system. So that's the first question. Now the question is why do you want to do this at the state level? Well, go back to the situation that you have with Hammer and Dagenhart. And that's a situation where the question was put as to whether or not you wanted to have a 14-hour child labor law or a 12-year-old child labor law. And just John Marshall, not John, um, basically, uh, oh, what's his name? Davis, right? John W. Davis, who was the Solicitor General at the time, said that there'd be deadly competition amongst the state. There's a prisoner's dilemma game. Well, he forgets competition is a prisoner's dilemma game as well. If all the sellers can't get together in order to put higher prices on their goods, they're going to have to sell them at the point where marginal cost is equal to marginal benefit, and it turns out you get an efficient competitive equilibrium. Well, when you ever play the prisoner's dilemma game, you have to ask whether the dilemma game is negative sum or positive sum. If you're talking about extracting oil from a field under multiple owners, it's pretty clear that either you have cooperative behavior organized by the state, or you destroy the field, because then it's just waste. But in this case, it's competition. How do we know that the 14-year child labor prohibition is better than the 12-year? answer is we don't know. And in fact, one of the ways to read this is to say that those states which want to have the higher form of social regulation are in fact taking advantage or rather facing competition from low stuff. Do you think that all the people in North Carolina are crazy about their own children? What happened was just quite simply on child labor, as prosperity increased, the issue just simply disappeared. And it turns out if you go through the progressive period and check the number of people under a certain age, any age that you care to mention um, who are in child labor, it goes down. Number of women in the workforce goes up. Some of you have how the progressives rewrote the Constitution. All of the basic statistics are there in the first chapter on how this thing happened. Uh, So this was all mythic, that there was some serious and systematic problem. What there was was general amelioration because the only way you will solve the child labor problem is to increase income levels. And so the period at which people like Frankfurter and Brandeis, largely ignorant of how the system worked, denounced as being oppressive industrialization with a period of the greatest material advance in human history ever. Uh, If you go back to 1550, life expectancy was 40. You get to 1850, it's still 40. By the time you get to 1900, it's mysteriously with industrialization up to 46. Oh, that must just be a statistical blip. Then it goes another 20 years to 54, then to 61, then to 65. This is not created by government. It's created by understanding medicine and by new technologies. The dirtiest industry in the world is farming if you have to do it by hand. Industrial labor is the same way. It's not that you want a workman's compensation law or don't want it. They were, in fact, voluntary workman's compensation systems, widely understood. It's you want to automate the process so that people don't have to be within six inches of molten steel uh, when it turns out they're trying to earn their daily kind of bread. So uh, there is, in this situation, again— Uh, The huge danger that cartelization at the national level will destroy things, that's what happened with the Agricultural Adjustment Act, that's what happens with the National Labor Relations Act, that's what happens with the Motor Vehicle Act, that's what happened with the CAB. I can think of no particular case done at the federal level which, in fact, has produced improved competitive conditions. Thank you, (laughs)
0: All right, we've got time for just a few questions from the audience. Uh, let's go uh, right here with this gentleman. Uh, please uh, wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, and please uh, make it a question. I'll make it a speech. I don't <laughs> <laughs> we, We've had quite uh, enough. Steve speeches. Hankin,
2: no affiliation, retired. Um, I I wanted to ask you. It's a very broad kind of question, but I wanted to ask you what you think of uh, the difference of law forming through the common law versus statutory law and how that has really uh, sort of informed the, the issue maybe that you've discussed in your, in your book, that if, in other words, if we had stuck with a strictly
0: common law system, the va- uh, changes in values and changes in technology would have been done
2: through the the court system in a gradual way, and maybe there wouldn't have been as many uh, n- such a need for constitutional attacks and
0: constitutional challenges. A br- br- Bruno Leone type question yeah, it's, for it's you, It's a Rachel. fair
1: question. Roger and I actually talked about this at great length at dinner last night. And look, it's the question is not whether this law is created by statute, by constitution, or by common law. It's the question what the focus is. So you could create a common law doctrine which says, in effect, that any competitor is entitled to sue its rival under a theory of unfair competition for selling at below cost, which would be a predation theory. And in fact, one of the inspired moments of Justice Hughes in the good sense is he says, when I look at these regulatory statutes under unfair competition, The one thing I note about them, he says in Schechter, is they bear no relationship to the common law definitions, as I understood them, of unfair competition, which was the use of misrepresentation, either elevating the quality of your own goods or denigrating the quality of the goods of your rivals in an effort to distort prices. What you're doing here with unfair competition is you're saying that when somebody knows exactly what he's selling and exactly the right prices, you can block this from happening. So if you get the wrong common law doctrine, you're as dangerous as you are elsewhere. So, for example, in England, when it came to the question of whether or not you could control really strong union abuses, uh, what these characters said was that an act which is lawful in itself does not become unlawful with the presence of malice. And what they ignored was that the key issue was combination. And and so what we would call under the antitrust laws a collective refusal to deal being a per se violation, they treated as a per se legality situation so long as you were doing it for your self-interest. The number of cartels that do it for random terror, as opposed for trying to get money, is zero. So that's a classic illustration of a serious decline in common law. Why does it take place? Well, before 1900, laissez-faire liberalism tended to dominate the English courts. This is where I was raised. By the time you get to 1897 and the passage of a very bad workman's compensation statute, a completely different spirit takes over the land, and it reflects itself in bad legislation and bad common law. So what happens is the House of Lords finally figures out the error of its ways, and they're denounced as reactionary. And what they do is they then pass the Trade Disputes Act of 1906, which reinstates the earlier common law rules and says, we don't believe in inducement of breach of contract actions, which, of course, you should believe in. We don't believe that any act is unlawful. If done by one, it can be done by many. All the things that get done, and we don't issue injunctions except in those cases where there's imminent peril of physical harm uh, so that union organizers in effect are given a free field. Uh, the statutes in the common law reflected in many cases exactly the same sorts of intuitions. So what you need to do is to get them both right. Now, can you run a common law system without a statute? The answer is no. And let's go back to the 1890s or the 1640s. Let me give you some statutes without which we could not function as a commercial society. We have something known as the statute of frauds, which requires that certain kinds of contracts be evidenced in writing to be enforced against a particular person. These were introduced in 1676, and when John Locke wrote his treatise on government and talked about the need for the regulation of property, he was thinking to the 1676 statute, which was the most important land use reform of the time. And by the 1830s, we have recordation statutes. You can't run a recordation system privately because you have to have a single monopoly place to which you can look. A competitive industry does not work. Uh, So you can't do that. In the 1890s, we had the problem with the oil fields. And what the common law judges said is, well, we're going to have to try to stop this abuse, so they prohibit slant drilling. Well, that gets rid of 10% of the problem, but you then see the picket fence take place, that is, everybody drilling right next to their boundary line. It costs you 10 times as much as a single well in the middle, but it knocks down production by 80%. Gary Livercap has done some very reliable work on this issue, which says that the moment you have five or more people sitting on top of an oil field, you cannot get a voluntary solution. You've got to have unitization or some other kind of system. And so what happens is you then develop very good statutory mechanisms for doing this, but you can take a good idea and make it a better idea. How do you do that? Well, you let them cartelize or organize to get the well out of the oil out of the ground, and then you let the Railroad Commission in Texas, after it's in bottles and barrels, uh, to cartelize the price at which it's sold in the open market. So you turn from an extraction control mechanism, positive sum, to an antitrust cartel, because you don't draw the difference.
0: Okay, if we could have just a couple more one-sentence questions and one-paragraph answers, that
1: would be... <laughs> at yeah. least you got the ratio right, yeah. <laughs>
0: hi uh, trevor burris from the cato institute um just uh, your views on sort of the constellation of justiciability political question doctrine and enforcement issues of courts actually staying out of deciding questions because they're afraid the executive will not enforce and in, in that source of restraint
1: okay well that look this is uh, four chapters in the book um <laughs> But let me just sort of mention the first thing. Another one of the great mistakes in American constitutional history endorsed by conservative judges is the notion that somehow or other you have to prove industry and fact in a discreet way to you in order to have standing in federal court. You look at the Constitution, the word standing is not written in Article 3, and somehow you get this magical restriction from a phrase which begins, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity, which hardly sounds like that. Cases in equity are in many cases designed to deal with specific injuries, foreclosure, but in many cases, like derivative actions, they're intended to deal with those harms which are widely diffused, where there's an abuse of power, so that you can sue as a citizen or a taxpayer of a municipality to stop ultra-virus transactions of your local government. When Justice Sutherland is faced with these things, he doesn't have a clue as to what is going on, and he reads the words and equity out of the Constitution and says, well, we can't do this at the federal level. Why can't we do it at the federal level? Because governments are bigger at the federal level than the municipal level. That's upside-down craziness, because the larger the number of people, the greater the need for equitable remedies of this sort, not the lesser." So what does it do? It allows the Maternity Act to go through, which is a direct system of transfer payments, and by the time you're done, because these guys don't understand standing, um, you never have a serious debate at the time as to whether or not this was within the spending power of the United States, which it wasn't. Rightness and advisory opinions are different situations. You've got to be very careful about them, but yes, there's no question that these guys understood that the question of whether you go to war was something for the Congress and the president to decide, and they'd stay out of it. Um, ripeness is very tricky. I mean, it all depends on a whole variety of factors as to whether you do this, but I'm involved in a lot of litigation in which, you know, what you do in these water cases, if you say you don't suit right away, the statute of limitations basically runs on you, and then, in effect, uh, if you wait too long, it's that, and if you go too soon, it's unripe. Uh, so what you do is you get hit by both sides of that thing, and you have to be very careful about how that's run. Okay, uh,
0: right up uh, there, please. And then uh, Drew Hopkins, George Mason, Law Law School. I'm a student there. Uh, I haven't read your book yet, but I look forward to it. I see you only have one mention in the book of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. So I'd be curious about a classical liberal um, perception on that, particularly they're they're talking about introducing a special independent advocate to make these a more adversarial type proceeding. So what they have standing?
1: This is, I mean, this is actually something I talked about earlier this morning on the NSA. And, and let me tell you the irony about this is I decided in part for reasons of length not to do the criminal side of the Constitution in this book. And then last spring I said, this is silly. So I sat down and I taught criminal procedure for the first time. Um, so I actually now know something about it, which I did not know, when this thing was in press. Um, look, there is a very serious problem here, um, one has to basically worry about how you balance the needs for secrecy with the needs for impartiality. And if, in fact, you have these things going ex parte, it's a serious risk. The presumption is one-sided hearing are uh, not meaning Audi alterum partem, which is the old Roman maxim for you have to hear the other side before you decide. And so you have to assume that this thing is going to be subject to serious constitutional doubts. The then question is, how do you cure it? The problem about having the other guy come in is essentially that intelligence work requires secrecy, and if you tell the adversary, you might as well send a message direct to the Kremlin. We think this is the way in which you are doing your intelligence work. So trying to get the independent advocate in there is a way of doing this, but who is that going to be and what are they going to see and how do you certify them uh, is, of course, a very difficult sort of question. So my view about this is, the same as my view is about things like how you deal with Iran and so forth, uh, you've got to make sure that you try to invest these judicial weaknesses um, under due process standards, but you have to be careful about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The one reform that I'm strongly and unambiguously in favor of, is I do not think the chief justice should have the sole power of appointment to the FISA court think that that has to be diversified. If you've got 18 members, I want each of these guys to have two of them to appoint there because of the separation in powers. I also think that one should publish those portions of the opinion which talk about interpretations of the statute independent of the factual questions that are before them. And I also think, to go the other way, that there's a very strong case that could be made for saying that some of the internal procedures that are imposed inside uh, the intelligence agencies are too restrictive and they don't allow you to move fast enough. I regard all of these institutional arrangements as open for serious deliberation because there is no doubt there is a government function to try to protect us against the uncertain application of force by domestic and foreign enemies so you can't be laissez-faire when it comes to these kinds of issues. That's what we mean when we talk about health and safety falling within the police power. And we're using here police power in its original term, not the Department of Agriculture setting up raising quotas.
0: I have a question up there. Hi, Alex Narasta, Cato Institute. with
2: uh, mm-hmm. the classical liberal interpretation of the Constitution, how would you view immigration restrictions that are meant to keep out foreign laborers who want to come to the U.S. to compete with Americans?
1: Well, I mean, you know, this is a very interesting and very difficult question. Uh, first of all, if you start looking at the federal Constitution, there is no federal power that is explicit to deal with the question of immigration. The only expressive power is, is, um, is naturalization. Right, which is essentially figuring out how you take people who are immigrants and make them into citizens. Uh, the way in which this thing has to work is, of course, as follows. We get the power to regulate it either by bold assertion or we treat it as an adjunct to the foreign commerce power, of which there is some serious textual doubts in virtue of the fact that commerce in many cases may not have meant passengers and people, but only the shipment of goods and across state lines, probably the original interpretation, not sustainable in my judgment. Then the question is, why is it that we treat foreign laborers different from domestic laborers? And I think there's a very powerful answer. You let in free goods from foreign countries, and I'm not basically a free trader. It's funny, none of them vote. You start letting in large numbers of immigrants, you change the political constitution of a nation. Um, open it up today to free immigration and see how many people come from China on the next plane, all of whom are entitled to enter as of right. Um, you cannot have a free immigration system because uh, the labor is a tied good with everything else. Now I've written on this independent of the Constitution. and my view about it is that we should have a much different kind of immigration policy that we do. And the one reform that is unambiguous is you look at the H-1 visa programs, uh, all the anti-competitive horror stories that you see elsewhere are there. So that in order to get somebody in, you have to prove that there's no able-bodied American who could do the same work. The assumption is every immigrant who comes in steals a job, none of them create jobs. And if you look at the, the amount of vitality in this country's women imminent policies, you want to change those policies at to the top in a desperate fashion so as to make sure that they cease to be protectionist with respect to competition of an in industry, and you're worried about the serious problems of how it is that you run a welfare state. So when my great-grandparents came to this country, you know, then there were 1,200,000 immigrants in 1907, um, there was no welfare magnet drawing them here. Um, And it was a very different system, and we managed to absorb them. But transportation itself was an implicit barrier to entry, and there was no carrot at the other end. Now there's no transportation barrier, and there's huge carrots, so you have to be able to adjust that. If you wanted me to go through the immigration rules that we currently have in place, I would summarize them in one word, a disgrace, which is not to say that they ought to be eliminated.
0: Okay, one final question from someone whose name was invoked and not in vain, Professor David Bernstein.
1: Oh, yeah, you actually know something, David. You're a dangerous man.
0: (laughs) Is your microphone switch on?
1: Stand up, David, so you can be seen as well as heard.
0: Uh,
2: Yeah, um, so... What do you do if there is a mistake that was made originally that could be reversed but isn't going to be, and you're on the court and you're faced with a second best solution that is not supported by the text of the Constitution? And the example I'll give, and I'm sure you have your own if you don't like this one, is you get rid
1: of non delegation doctrine, a second best, somewhat poor, but not completely irrelevant substitute is a line item veto. It's the line item veto. I think that that is exactly what I was talking about when I talked about the prescriptive Constitution. You make fundamental mistakes, and the question is, can you or can you not reverse them? And the argument against reversibility in this case is at this particular point, we have this huge apparatus in place, huge amounts of reliance, interest. We can't do anything about it. First of all, I think that it is an overstated argument. I can think of all things that I could repeal, like the Fair Labor Standards Act from top to bottom, uh, which would only have the following massive dislocation. There would be unemployed bureaucrats. My solution to that is to pension them off for two years' salary and tell them to get a position in the private sector, which will expand and observe them. So I don't even want to buy that. But you're right about non-delegation. It is, in fact, what, I, what I'm saying is that once you give this particular power, is the legislative veto a corrective against it? Well, remember, in charter it had only one thing. If somebody wanted to stay it's an immigration case, stay in this country, Congress could send them out because they were afraid of too much special favors. You're not going to control the uh, entire administrative state by manipulating the legislative veto. The administrative state has got a, you know, A size of 10 million, and the legislative veto to the extent that it's used as dealing with individual cases and other things of that sort. You have to go directly at the program, and this is the way I would do it. I would reinforce the health and safety limitations. So, when the Environmental Protection Agency essentially has the Clean Air, Dirty Coal Act of these 1970s, what they did is they said, you know what, you're in. Ohio with Mr. Metzenbaum and in West Virginia with Mr. Byrd, uh, you got to lower your emissions from 100 to 10. But then what they do is they say, hey, we can't sell our coal because it's cheaper to get Western coal in as well. So what we do is we worry it's basically emissions, dangerous sulfur dioxide content, sulfur content, whatever, from 10 to 1. So you spend the same amount of money to getting nine units of protection from the one as you get from 90 of the others. Uh, that is simply not an appropriate means ends a relationship. We know this is an explicit anti-competitive legislation. What you do is you strike down the part of pie to California and you keep rather to the clean coal in Colorado and you keep the rest of it. Now you're talking my game. So you just let me free on the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. And I'll give you but one other instrument. There's a recently a terrible decision called Mildenburg, which you teach in water law. And what you discover is if the government decides to pollute and kill things, riparian rights don't protect you against pollution. Uh, you go back and you read every important water law case from 100, 110 years ago, they all say that riparians, people under prior appropriation system, reasonable user system, they all have anti-pollution protection. One of the things that's terrible about government is it does not protect you against common law torts because it gives you administrative immunities. And I'm looking at certain federal judges in this room and hoping that they will decide uh, that you do not allow an administrative situation to exclude common law remedies available to strangers. And if we do that, it would make an enormous difference. The government is one of our prime polluters, and they get away with murder in this area, as in too many others.
0: Jess uh, has one last question, Richard. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, Justice Scalia recently was asked uh, if he could amend the Constitution in one way, what would he do? And he said he would make it easier to amend the Constitution. Uh, if you could uh, amend the Constitution in one way, what, uh, what would be your, your uh, magic choice?
1: Well, the, the last thing I would want to have is another constitutional convention, which would be dominated by people who take away the frail protections that are already there, so I regard that as poison, not medicine. Um, the one that I would put in is a proposition which says that all anti-competitive legislation should be struck down as unconstitutional. <laughs> well, well,
0: that
1: would bring us then, the Yeah, you know, What minimal do you think state, about you agree? I? Me? Not for me to agree. <laughs> oh, he's a reporter. I he got this. Reports. I forget it. That's right. Look, I, this would be completely unfair, so let me make the following final disclaimer. My answers to Jess Brobin are not meant to express or imply that he agreed with any of the dubious questions that he asked me.
0: Thank you, Jess. Okay, let's have a good uh, round of applause for Jess and Richard.